Okay, so um, it's quite an exciting time this morning. I think every Sunday morning is, but uh, particularly I'm excited because we're looking at the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation, which I'll speak very briefly about as a way of introduction. Um, And this is the first uh, talk that we're going to do from that, which is um, uh, Scripture alone, Sola Scriptura. Uh, Five solo, which we're going to be looking at. uh, Scripture alone, faith and grace alone, Christ alone, and glory to God alone. When we were praying in there before the service, we said all the glory... Uh, must go uh, to God. And so these five uh, solos, which we have the first slide uh, up, if we can, because I like to point at pictures. I love technology. I'm sure they'll come up in a second. But we've got the five solos, which we're looking at. Scripture alone, faith and grace alone, Christ alone, glory uh, to God alone. And these came, uh, not necessarily at the time, but out of uh, the Protestant Reformation, a foundational set of biblical principles held by theologians and churchmen to be central to the doctrine of what we know as salvation, of how can I be saved, which we'll talk about later on at communion. How can I be saved? I can only be saved by through one person, and that's Jesus Christ. Uh, and this is the sort of things what we're going to look at that taught now by Western uh, Protestants. The Reformation is one of those things that probably most of you have heard of, uh, but sometimes we don't quite understand it when we say, oh, there's a Reformation. That's good. Um, and there's quite a lot that went into the Reformation, the culmination of centuries of Catholic corruption or a bit of a fluke, maybe the consequence of a European power vacuum that was around at the time or a grand theological uh, debate. Uh, maybe it was a reasonable quest for a son and heir or simply a result of Henry VIII's lustful nature. All of these things contributed to the Reformation. But the paper was really lit 500 years ago when a discovery was made that would change the world. It would literally change the world and change people's faith to what it should have been. It transformed lives then and it transforms lives now. To this day, people then were held in guilt and bondage. They were being manipulated that they had to somehow earn God's love. And that manipulation meant that people could be abused out of fear and it found them left deeply unhappy. That doesn't sound like good news. And the discovery was this, as said by himself, Martin Luther, failing broken people are attractive, and you need to really listen to this, they're attractive because they are loved. They are not loved because they are attractive. Broken people are attractive because they are loved. It starts with love, God's love. It means we're all attractive to God, that he loves all of us, whatever mess or good or whatever we're doing, it starts with love. God doesn't love us because somehow I can attain that or earn it. He just does. God in his his essence is love, is love. And that was countercultural then to what was being, oh there you are, that's the picture. See, I've got got Martin Luther there on the left, lovely looking bloke. Almost as bad, Henry VIII. And there's the indulgences that the Catholic Church was teaching. Somehow you could buy your way out of purgatory. This is the abuse that was going on. So it's countercultural then and countercultural now. It started on the 31st of October, so a little bit late, 1517, when Luther, he was a German monk, he nailed these 95 theses for debate on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. And people used to do this. If there was something up to debate, they would nail the, their thesis. So it wasn't really, he ran up then, it was unheard of. But he nailed these theses. Whether he expected the reaction he got, uh, we don't know. We know it cost him uh, a lot. But we wanted to debate things uh, and matters about love 
and forgiveness. Matters that he said, if not understood, made people deeply unhappy, whereas the gospel was good news, that somehow the church had turned it into kind of manipulation and people were being abused. So now he was a monk, and as a monk, he tried self-denial. He's trying to earn God's forgiveness. He was in fear of judgment and condemnation. He's trying to please God, to earn his favour. But as he read his Bible, he was in despair as he realised that actually nothing was good enough in his own strength. And that leaves you wanting and depressed and low. But also as a monk, uh, he had time to really study the Bible. Now the Bible wasn't available to so many people then, mainly in the hands of priests, which was why it could be, you know, the church had a lot of uh, a voice and a say because people couldn't check what they were saying against the word of God. But he had a Bible, which not, wouldn't, as I say, everybody couldn't do at the time. And when he read Romans 1, verse 17, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith. He realised that God's righteousness is something he shares with us. It's a gift. It's not, a, it's not our righteousness, it's his righteousness. It can't be earned. You can't earn a gift, you receive a gift. It couldn't be earned. And he was so moved by this. He did various things, among others, nailing these 95 theses to the door in Wittenberg. But he wrote a booklet called The Freedom of the Christian. The Freedom of the Christian. We've been set free. We've been, there's no condemnation now for those in Christ Jesus. And in that book, he, he had an analogy. He's a bit like, I suppose, um, an early C.S. Lewis, Lewis with his Narnia stories. Um, he uses a story an allegory to explain a fact. And he has this story in this book, booklet, The Freedom of the Christian, about a king. And the king can choose anybody. Uh, but he happens to come across this prostitute, a debt-ridden prostitute. And he loves her. And the prostitute trusts him. So, of course, the king in this story is Christ. The prostitute is us. You know, really fallen human beings. Now, she could never make herself the queen. She could never say, well, I am going to be a queen. I declare myself a queen. But the king, because he loves her so much, he marries her and he makes his vows. And with that, she is his. And the prostitute becomes a queen because of what he's done. He takes her, he bears all of her debts, he takes all those debts on himself, and what he gives her, he shares immense wealth. She now shares the immense wealth with him. You see, he gets her debts, she gets his wealth. She couldn't have earned it. She didn't become a queen by all of a sudden behaving royally. But when the king married her, he changed her status. She is now a queen. For all of the backstreet ways, she can say, I am a queen. And the greatest failure who accepts Jesus Christ gets to share his righteousness and his status. There is a status swap. He bears your debt and he gives you his righteousness and inheritance. He does that for everybody who trusts in him. Luther called it the joyful exchange. I mean, it is a good deal. The joyful exchange. And it was so important to Christ that he set up one of our sacraments to remind us of just what he's done, that we're clothed in his righteousness and he's taken our sin on himself and he deals with it on the cross. We've said before, when I look at myself, how can I be saved? When I look at the cross, how can I not be? Because it's not about me, it's about him. And the Reformation wasn't a call to do better, but more a recovery of the message that had been lost and was now corrupted. 
There was abuse in the church, in the Catholic church especially. It was rife. Money being taken from people who didn't know better to somehow ally the wrath of God. They were misled. I mean, great cathedrals were built on it. Instead, sinners are attractive because they are loved. It starts with love. They are not loved because they are attractive. God so loved the world that he gave his son. And so, with that background, with these discoveries and convictions that he found, and against a prevailing culture of abuse by the church, Luther posts his 95 Thesis on the door at Wittenberg, and the Reformation begins and gathers pace. Confidence and peace in the Christian heart follows. The realisation that you're declared righteous by having faith in what Christ has done. This is what we remember this morning. So we're going to look at the first sola today, sola scripture, by scripture alone. Scripture alone. So let me go to the second slide. There it is. Okay, what does it mean by scripture alone? And the reason we're focusing on this, and this came out of the Reformation, this, this one of these uh, sayings, one of these solas, is because if we go away from scripture, we can abuse the message of God. If I err from scripture and say, well, this is what we think and this is what you should do and it's not scriptural, then that's subject to abuse. Our authority is the Bible, the word of God. So we say by scripture alone. It means that as Christians we accept the Bible, the holy scriptures, as God's word to us. And it's the Bible alone that directs our church traditions and interpretations which are themselves then to be held subject to scripture. All church traditions, creeds, teachings must be in unity with the Bible as the divinely inspired word of God. If we walk away from that, as some of the world has done, and they'll say at some churches, then we're in trouble. Because then, if this is not fact, if this is not God's word, then I can kind of just drift off into uh, any direction. And we've got an example in the New Testament, haven't we? The Bereans tested Paul in Acts 17.11. Now the Bereans Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. So here we have St. Paul. We hold him up in high regard. But they, t- they, they, they looked at the scriptures, the Bible they had, to test to see what he said was true. This is, this is why I try and st- stick to the Bible and to Scripture. Because otherwise on the door, I can get into trouble. Once I go off into opinions um, and walk away from this, then I'm in trouble. I'm subject to correction, uh, subject to being told I'm wrong. And no one likes that, do they? Do they? I don't like being told I'm wrong. It doesn't happen often. But if we stick with the Bible, I have to be very careful, I know I'm on such dodgy ground here. (laughs) If we stick with the Bible, if I stick with the Bible, if preachers stick with the Bible, and then we have an authority that is not of our own, it is from God. Now, um, uh, when I was at Spurgeon's College, I say this this morning because uh, Mr. Uh, Paul Scott Evans and his dad is among us, um, which is good. And he was the business manager at Spurgeon's when I studied. So I feel a little bit under the spotlight. I have to say, I haven't seen him mark anything yet or send any report back or get me thrown uh, out of the church. But I'm going to say this, which was, I was going to say anyway. But when, one of the first lectures we had was the practice of theology. And Nigel Wright taught that. And he used to talk about this thing, which really confused me, um, called the hermeneutical reflective trialogue. That sounds good, doesn't it? Uh, you all know what that means. It's really easy, actually. Hermeneutic sort of interpretation. But it was a, it was a, it was a good illustration. There were three circles. 
And basically what he was saying is, look, we're sh- and if in those circles are tradition, uh, scripture, and culture. And when those three come together, that's where we get our theology. Uh, so you've got culture, which can speak into how we are and what we do. Uh, we have to listen to the culture. And then we've got our tradition. We've always done it this way. doesn't mean it's not tested. Maybe we've been doing it wrong. But those two circles are of a certain size. The biggest circle was Scripture. And everything had to be tested against Scripture. That was the hermeneutical reflective trial. What it meant was you get an issue and you put it through that process. What is culture saying? What does my tradition say? But what does the Word of God say? And out of that comes our theology. But the biggest circle was Scripture. And so often we tend to be tempted to be shaped by the culture. Well, the culture now says this is okay. So we've got to change. Or our tradition says we've always done it this way. So we can't change, despite if it's different to this. But we come back to Scripture. It's the Bible, and that's what we stick to. It's important to us. We need, in a sense, our own reformation. We need to be taking the Bible very seriously, especially in this world as it is now. To study it, to know it, to live it. It means that sometimes, because we know it, we're countercultural. That's biblical as well. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Testing what God's will is for us. It mustn't be neglected in church. I went to a, I went to a, a meeting quite a few months ago, uh, full of Christians um, and quite a few church leaders, and we were talking about a certain service. They said, do we really need the word uh, preached? And yeah, I thought, well, how far are we falling? Of course we need the word preached. These are the holy scriptures. We need them preached well, we need them preached with truth. But they are important. It's important to us. And we are countercultural. Again, if I can use a Spurgeon's illustration, just to make sure I'm getting brownie points, uh, the doctrine of the church, uh, taught by John Colwell, was the doctrine of the church and the ethics of distinctiveness. We're supposed to be distinct. We're supposed to be distinct. We're supposed to stick out. We don't bend to culture. Not so much that we'll break. And how's that working out for those churches that do that? Not very well. The growing churches have been the strong evangelical churches across all traditions. So the church instead needs to be a prophetic witness, an example to the world, holding on to these great truths and living them out in authentic lives. And I think, and this is why I go into opinion, which means I may get in trouble, there is a great need now, these times, The Bible talks about wars and rumours of wars, nations rising up against nations as a sign of the end of this age, heralding the return of Christ. The Bible talks about earthquakes as a sign of the end of the age, heralding a return of Christ. Jesus is coming. We don't know when, and preachers have been preaching it for 2,000 or so years. But the signs are there. And the world is lost. And God so loved the world, he sent his son. For whoever believes in him should never die. It's time for the church, as we've said before, to be uncomfortable and on the edge. We need to hold on to these truths and win as many people as we can for Christ. It's great to see you all here. It really is, but I wish we needed five services. There's so many people out there. We need to take God's word seriously when he says, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And then he says, surely I am with you to the very end of the age. Jesus is coming back. I don't know when. He doesn't know when. 
Revelation says it's only for the Father to know. But he is coming back. That is the word of God. We're told he will return. And I don't want to be found lukewarm or wanting or a little bit too safe. We need to take God's word seriously because God's word has the authority. 2 Timothy 3.16 All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. Now it's God-breathed. We know it's a collection of books. We know it's got over 40 authors, written over about 1,600 years. But it's inspired by God. God breathed, therefore it's my authority. This is God's word to us. God's word is living. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Now we know this. Don't we? That's a really common verse. But when we live it out, when so, you know, people, you may not think it, but sometimes I get upset. And of course I do, because I'm only human. Now sometimes I get upset for the right reasons, and, and a lot of the time I get upset for the wrong reasons. And I have to take myself off into a little corner and give myself a little talking to. But as I read into the Bible, I think, actually, what about my attitude? What about God's love for a person? Or what does it mean for me? And I realise God speaks to me And it's not that I'm crushed, but it penetrates. And I think, oh, I've got to look at myself as much as the other person. It's God's word that penetrates and changes me, hopefully, for the better. But it's powerful. It's alive. It's not a dead book. It's alive and active, and it will penetrate if you allow it to. God's word is guiding. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light of my path. The lamp guides, doesn't it? It lights up the darkness. And it, it lights up the way forward. We used to go camping quite a bit. We've grown out of that now, and what the kids have, which is a real blessing. Um, <laughs> but I remember, uh, you know, you go to those posh campsites uh, where they have toilets. It's like a nice little comfort factor. Um, uh, but often the toilets are not in your tent. Have you noticed that? They don't build them in your tent. So at three o'clock in the morning, you have to get up. And, you know, you think, oh, really? How bad is it? And then you wait for two hours, you finally give in, and off you go. And you can stumble over the tent pegs, and this is a sole survivor experience as well. Um, But not if you've got one of those head things, which lights up, and it lights up the way ahead. There is darkness all around, but wherever you look, you can see, which is important when you're going to the bathroom. So, your word is a lamp to my feet, means we can look ahead, The word guides us, the way forward. If I turn that lamp off, if I ignore this word, I'm in trouble. I'm tripping over the tent pegs. I'm tripping over other people. I'm tripping over situations because I'm not relying on the word of God. It lights up the way forward. The Bible is, let's get my next slide up, there you go, the most popular book in the world. Did you know that? If it was allowed, which it's not, in the bestsellers list, it'd be there pretty much every week. Isn't that incredible? No one speaks about that, do they? It's really, really popular. It would top the bestsellers list pretty much week after week. It's a powerful book, so powerful that some countries ban it. People's lives get changed, transformed. I feel like I'm on a Spurgeon's quest today because I'm quoting loads of things. They keep coming to mind. I blame you, Paul. Um, But another lecturer, uh, John Colwell, used to say to us, uh, you can't just have the information. You've got to have the transformation. 
You've got to have information that leads to transformation. We're to be changed. So it's a very powerful book as it speaks to us, as it's living and active, sharpen a double-edged sword. The word that's a lamp to my feet, it changes. It lights up the way forward. It, it's, it's a radical book. Some cultures, they've got like really old Bibles. They can't get the new ones. And it's precious. And we have so many, don't we? Apparently, there's just under seven in each American household. I haven't got the figures for England, so we're going to talk about America for a little bit. Um, 6.8 Bibles in each American household. Incredible. It's very powerful. But when, when we have so many, sometimes we maybe we're a bit flippant. No, you know, I'll just put that there. Oh, there's the Daily Mail, which I know you'll read. Um, and I'm going to look at that. I'm not going to look at this. It's Spurgeon that said, there it is again. It just keeps coming up. I have the Bible in one hand, the newspaper in the other. We've got to be able to interpret the world through the lens of Christ, not the other way around. We need the Bible. Why? Matthew 4, verse 4, the words of Jesus. People do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. You know, when he, when he said that, that word is in the present tense. It means continually coming out of the, of the mouth of God. It's never static. It's always speaking. Passages, you'll know if you read it, will sometimes leap out to you. Passages maybe when you're studying, you're not even looking for it. Sometimes it is just study. But in those devotional times, when you ask God to speak, they leap out. It's happened to me many times. I'm sure it's happened to you as well. But I'm not reading it. Then God's not speaking through his word at that time. Revelation, God speaks. And the question is, are we listening? God is speaking into his world now. He speaks into our lives through the Bible. When Jesus spoke, uh, quoting the Bible that he knew at the time, he would often say, God said. Or you have heard God say. He, he wasn't questioning who the authority was. And we say we're followers of Christ. If he's not questioning it, then nor should we. It's great for practical wisdom. Guidelines for living. Guidance for good decisions. Right relationship with God. Everyday life. Work pressure, giving, forgiving. It's all there. So we've got the general will of God. You can come up to me and ask certain questions. Um, and I'd point you back to the Bible and say, well, look, it says there in the Bible, clearly not. Sometimes we need more discernment. But there's some practical uh, 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 ideas for living. And, and some people say, well, it's a bit judgmental. It's a bit too rules-based. And so it's there to spoil my fun. And, and, I, and we get this on Alpha. And I say to him, think about a football match. This is one I've nicked um, from somebody else. Nicky Gumbel, I think. Um, but if you imagine a football match and you've got kids on the field and there's, there's 22 children, eight on one side and the rest on the other, that's unfair, but they're going to do it anyway because no one wants to play with that lot. And they don't really mark out the corner flags or the goalposts and everything else. And they kick the ball up. No one's really blowing a whistle. There's fouls everywhere. They're arguing. It was a goal. It wasn't a goal. It was offside. It wasn't offside. Don't even understand it. But, you know, it's all going. And they're not having fun. And people are getting hurt and injured. But then one of the adults come over. One of the dads or the mums comes over and says, look, tell you what, I'll be referee. Mark out the corners. Mark out the goalposts. It's got to be 11 aside. And let's just, oh, that's a foul. Um, yellow card or whatever it is. All of a sudden, the rules are in place. The rules are there, but it's not spoiling their fun. They're actually now safer, and they're having more fun. Sometimes we need, or we, or we always need, God's guidance for our lives. God speaks through relationship. For some people, it's exploring faith. Romans 10, verse 17 says, Faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. 
The Word brings people to God. I know many people who have been given a Bible. And when I asked them, what was it, the preaching? Was it a particularly good sermon I did that week? Or was it, you know, something else or Christian witness? They say, no, I was just reading the Bible. And all of a sudden, I felt God speak to me. I mean, I'm hoping sometimes it is the preaching, but I'm still waiting for that. It's the Word of God. It's living and active, sharp and a double-edged sword. It's penetrating. If we're not reading it, though, it won't. So it's for those exploring faith. It's for those of us that are developing faith. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says we're being transformed into his likeness. Is that word transformed again. We're supposed to change and become more like Jesus, more like God. It gives us a steadfast faith. Often I see people who are really strong Christians who know their word. And, and, and life is not great. There's faith in troubled times. But Philippians 4.7, 4, they, they get that peace that surpasses understanding. It's a defending faith, faith that defends against spiritual attack. Matthew 4, 1 to 11. When Jesus was tempted, he used the word of God to answer Satan back. In ministry situations, we'll often start with a reading. It is amazing what happens because it is alive and active. That's why countries ban it. Psalm 1, 1 to 3. It's a blessing faith. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf doesn't wither. Whatever he does prospers. And a question for me and for you this morning. Are we being flippant with the word of God? Do you let it go? There's other things to do. Or am I delighting in the Bible and meditating on the Bible, applying the Bible, being transformed by God's word to me? It's really important. But I've got a small warning. You can know, you've probably heard this saying, you can know the word of the Lord, but you must know the Lord of the word. You can know, have all the knowledge, you can quote all the Bible passages, but you must know the Lord of the of the word. Jesus himself said it in John 5.39, you diligently study the scriptures for eternal life. They knew the scriptures. He says, but they testify about me. So people were studying the scriptures and, and ignoring him. Who's old enough here to remember the Haynes car manuals? Remember them? Those days. Remember those days where you fixed your own car? Changed the oil yourself? I remember those days. I really am not good at that stuff. I normally got my dad to go. But you could get those Haynes manuals. Remember them? And you would know all about how the car worked. It had all sorts of diagrams and everything. It was really good, wasn't it? it? tells you loads about the car. Loads of it. Or for those younger ones, in case you don't know about Haynes car manuals, you've got the highway code, haven't you? You know, you study that to take your driving test. You have to know all the rules of the road. Neither of those things are worth anything if you're not driving the car. You can know about a car, you can know all the rules, but at some point, start the engine and do what it was designed to do. So as Christians, we can know this, and it's important for us to know this, and we can know our doctrines, and that's important as well, but we've got to live it. We've got to start this great journey with God. We've got to get on with it, and the world needs to see the witness of the church more now than ever. Rick Warren said this to finish, or finishing, reading the Bible generates life, 
It produces change, it heals hurts, it builds character, it transforms circumstances, it imparts joy, it overcomes adversity, it defeats temptation, it infuses hope, it releases power, it cleanses the mind. Can you see why scripture alone is so important? We, we sometimes, I feel, take this for granted. We must be people of the word and people of the Lord. Can you see why it's important? The Reformation and then the wider ownership of the Bible with the coming of the printing press allowed Christians to stand firm on the word of God. And we saw radical change. People died for their faith. They really treated this word seriously. So go from this place. Don't go away unchanged. Don't be informed and not transformed. Find a time. It comes down to discipline. I always like it that the word disciple and discipline uh, seems closely linked. I don't think that's anything to do with Latin, Greek or Hebrew. I think it's just, it just is what it is. But it does take some discipline. Find a time. We're told Jesus got up early in the morning. Find some time. Find a place. Could be a certain chair or a room. Ask God to speak to you. Maybe you need some reading notes or a study Bible. A life application study Bible is very helpful. Or a Bible in one year app. They cost nothing. What does it say to me? What is this passage saying to me? What did it mean for the original hearer? And what, it, what does it mean for me now? How am I going to apply that in my life? And then respond in prayer and ask God to fill you with his spirit and change you, which he will. Put it into practice, that information that leads to transformation. Take it seriously. So the scripture, the scripture alone, that's our authority, God alone. That's our authority. We teach this stuff on Alpha. So if you're sitting here thinking, you know, I haven't heard this for a while, and actually I need to brush up, then come along this week. Just see me, you can come along. Let me pray for you, and then I'll hand back to Roger. Lord, we thank you that your word is a gift to us, that it's a lamp to our feet, that it's alive, active, sharp and a double-edged sword. Thank you that it guides us. Thank you, Lord, that you speak to it through us, not the only way, but a major way. And I ask for forgiveness, Lord, if we've neglected that neglected that privilege that some people in some countries that literally get killed for owning a Bible. What a privilege it is to have your word. And I pray, Lord, it would really become alive and active in our hearts, that we'd seek it passionately and hear your voice. To say along with Samuel, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And I know you'll speak to your people. I pray your blessing on them here. And I pray that we will have our own reformation and reignite our excitement for your word your scriptures, your Bible. In Jesus' name, amen.